0: This week we celebrated World Oceans Day as well as World Environment Day, which focused on finding solutions to plastic pollution under the campaign Beat Plastic Pollution. WaterCan, a proud AUTA initiative, is raising awareness about protecting South Africa's water resources from all kinds of pollution, amongst others. Not only because our rivers and dams supply drinking water to humans and animals, but also because whatever is found in our water eventually makes its way to the sea. I'm Ilse Zoltzverl and in this edition of Outer Insights, I'm chatting to Sarah Ferguson, long-distance swimmer and environmental activist, as well as Yamkela Ntola, an environmental law expert who is part of an international task team trying to find solutions for plastic pollution in oceans worldwide. Extreme swimmer Sarah Ferguson last year for the first time attempted a swim from Durban to Cape Town. And this is without a wetsuit, which I think is incredible. And Sarah is doing this to raise awareness about plastic pollution in the sea. I'm Ilse Saltzvittle and it's my pleasure to welcome Sarah Ferguson in this Outer Insights podcast. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Ilse. How are you? I'm fine, um, but I'm not the one swimming 1,500 kilometers between Durban and Cape Town or attempting to do that. Please tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm a passionate swimmer. Um, I used to swim competitively for Western Province and KZN, and I represented South Africa at the World Cup in Singapore in 2009 and a couple of times in, in South Africa as well. And... I decided when I retired and I was traveling that I wanted to do do some more with my swimming and my love of swimming and discovered the ocean in Hawaii when I was traveling and fell in love with it. Um, And that started the journey to what I do now, which is basically trying to swim to create awareness against single-use plastics and also just to highlight the importance of protecting our beautiful ocean.
0: 1,500 kilometers is a hell of a swim and I suppose you need a backup team for that and you need um, to earn money to be able to do that. So how did last year's challenge work and are you back in the sea yet? I'm not back in the sea yet. Um, last year we
1: started swimming in February with a hope to get to as close to Muscle Bay as possible by about April. And the funds that we were expecting and promised never came through so we ended up fully relying on public donations and um, you know self-funding to get us as far as we got and we got up to Port Elizabeth and we we probably finished about three weeks early um, for, because of funding issues but also the weather the weather turned quicker than usual so um, we had a lot of off days because of weather and every day we didn't swim also cost us money so yeah we finished off in, in Port Elizabeth at the beginning of April last year, uh, just before or just as the KZN floods happened. And then I had to come back to Natal to (laughs) the onslaught and aftermath of hectic floods, which wasn't really exciting.
0: Tell me about what's needed for you to be safe at sea before we get to why you're swimming and what you've learned.
1: Obviously safety is a priority when you're swimming in the ocean. There's a lot of unpredictable variables from marine life to currents to hypothermia and obviously just physical exhaustion and, and things like that. So, um, I've got a support boat. We, we went out with a rubber duck every day launching. So launching in itself can be the biggest danger. And then on that boat, I've got a swimming coach. And then I've also got a kayaker who kayaks next to me. One or two of them that they're either in a double or a single kayak, depending on the wind. Um, and they basically keep me straight. And then every 30 minutes, I'm, I'm eating and drinking fuel which my coach will feed me and then every now and then we get someone in the water to swim with me for some of the time. Funding was very limited so we kind of had the bare minimum in terms of team members. We had a couple of visitors on board at times. We had a couple of people coming to take some photos and things like that but yeah the basic team is really just a skipper, a kayaker and and a swim coach. We did have a land crew as well because we were obviously needing to come in at different launch sites so we had um, a second skipper who would take the trailer And the vehicle and meet us and tell us where to come in uh, where the safest launch or landing site was every day. Um, And then in part of that land crew for some of the trip I was lucky enough to have a massage therapist and a doctor who also helped me with my recovery along the route.
0: This is really, really extreme. Did you choose this extreme way of um, putting the ocean in the spotlight because of what's happening out there? Please tell us what you've encountered. Yeah,
1: it's been a it's been a journey and I've um, I've encountered many things in, in this journey and one of my swims that I did in 2019 was around Easter Island, which has got the highest concentration of microplastics in the world and that's why I picked that swim um, to circumnavigate the island, which no one had ever done before. And I, I thought that would be a really good way to really highlight why we need to protect our oceans because if you go to Easter Island, it's literally a small island in the middle of nowhere. I liken it to, um, you going home and opening your front door and finding a stranger's rubbish filling your, your lounge. It's not yours. You don't even know you put it there, but it's in your room and it's in your lounge and, and it's, it's sitting there and it's taken many years to get there. And that's what it's like for those people on the island. And that's what it's like for our marine life because it's our rubbish that is affecting our oceans and, and islands and people that we've never even met, whether or not we intentionally litter the waste management system and the way we live our lives now is so consumeristic that we we don't we've lost that connection between where our food and and packaging and things come from and so that yeah that really drives drives me to do what I do and unfortunately have um, encountered quite a lot of plastic during some of my swims and I think one of the worst experiences I had was during the sardine run in 2018 I was privileged enough to go and onto the sardine run which is a huge migration of sardines up the coast from the colder water to the warmer water. And you get this breeding frenzy with sardines and gannets and cormorants and whales and sharks and dolphins and fish. And we were in one of those bait balls amidst a whole bunch of plastic. And we saw firsthand birds diving in and picking up plastic instead of fish. And I think that was really a big turning point in my life and just seeing firsthand how we are affecting um, the ocean negatively.
0: You have now mentioned single-use plastic, you've mentioned consumerism, um, pollution by people, littering by people, but we also know that's part of the problem. As you've also pointed out, sewage systems is not what they're supposed to be and municipalities are dumping straight into the ocean instead of recycling and doing what they should be doing. Where does one start? Because it seems like an enormous task that you've taken on to highlight the plight of the ocean. But what can we do? Yeah, it is
1: very overwhelming when you start looking at it and thinking about it. But as individuals, it starts with one simple decision every day to refuse something that's single use. Whether it's taking your own cup for getting a takeaway coffee. Whether it's refilling your water bottle instead of buying bottled water. Whether it's picking up three pieces of litter on the beach or in your street when you see it floating around, um, if everyone just picks one thing that they can change, that will start them on a journey which will help them. Um, that's how my journey started. And now, you know, I'm quite, a, quite extreme in it. But it just, it, it's just about making one small change daily, um, and that will make an accumulative difference over time.
0: What about business? Shouldn't they be looking actively at uh, changing packaging, for instance, for fruit and veg or for um, stuff that we buy in the shops daily? Yes, absolutely.
1: Uh, There's a a large responsibility that falls on on businesses and there is a a new act, uh, the Extended Producer Responsibility Act, which will call on producers to be responsible for their packaging. Um, And that's going to take some time to implement, but that is a start. But we as consumers and individuals actually have the power. And if we start refusing those little plastic packets at the shop or your single-use plastics and start demanding alternatives, then they have no choice to change as well. So it's twofold. It needs to come from the top down. um, And there is tax and law and, and things that are changing around that. And I know that there's been a big global conference in Paris recently with the UN the environment program where they're really trying to create a circular pon- economy and change how things are done um, to help protect our, our oceans and our future.
0: Sarah, you mentioned that you had to go home um, and to basically salvage what was left of, I suppose, your own home, but also the greater Durban. People are living there, but life has drastically changed for you guys. Would you like to Just tell us what's happening there in terms of pollution in the city, uh, the rivers around Durban.
1: Yeah, we did have a big knock um, after we first, obviously everyone had to deal with COVID. And then Durban had riots uh, just after COVID, which affected chemical spills into our ocean. So our beaches were closed again. Um, And beaches in Durban are a huge tourism factor. So. There's toxic chemicals in our water and on our beaches and some of the beaches. And then we hit, got hit with the floods last year, which caused uh, damage in the infrastructure and huge problems with the sewage and E. coli counts. Um, and so we really have been hit really hard as a as a province um, and as a coastal province around issues affecting our ocean, which makes it more important now than ever to to really highlight what we as individuals need to do and also hold – the, the council and the municipality and national government responsible for maintaining infrastructure and stuff.
0: If you have one message today for everybody who is listening, what will that be? Apart from the, the pick up one thing, make one piece of difference every day. Our motto for Breathe
1: is to live deeply and tread lightly. And that's what I really hope to inspire people to do is, is find your passion, follow your dream, do what you love and in the process, be mindful of the people around you and the, and the connections that you have as well as nature. And so I think if we can all, like I feel very privileged that I'm getting to live out my dream, but it comes with a cost of of really taking responsibility for my actions around what that impact has on the environment and on the people around me. And I think if we can all get that right, then we we've got a really positive future ahead.
0: Okay, where can people get hold of you if they would like to be part of your journey and perhaps assist you to take up your uh, Durban-Cape Town swim again?
1: Yeah, we've got a website. It's breatheconservation.org. So you can get hold of me through there. You can follow all the projects that we're involved in, um, as well as details about the One Ocean Swim from Durban to Cape Town. Um, and if you are in Durban or you're wanting to come to Durban for the weekend, it's World Ocean Day on Thursday and we're having a big event Um on Saturday for all swimmers from 800 metres to 5
0: kilometres that you could also join if you want to do your bit to help our oceans. And that is Sarah Ferguson, long-distance extreme swimmer that is trying to raise awareness for the state of the ocean from Durban to Cape Town. Uh, Sarah, thanks a lot and good luck. Thank you. Thanks so much.
1: Outer Insights, where the conversation never stops.
0: Today it's my privilege to welcome Yamkela Ntola to the Outer Insights podcast. Yamkela used to be a member of the Outer team, specifically in the environmental sphere of our organization. And today he's talking to us in his role as Senior Lecturer with the Department of Public, Constitutional and International Law at UNISAS College of Law. And we are speaking to you, Yamkela, because you are also very, very concerned about the environment. Today we are celebrating World Oceans Day and we know that plastic pollution is a big problem locally. It ends up in the rivers, it ends up in the sea. But I would like you to just give us an overview of what's happening uh, in terms of governance, but also what's happening in the world when it comes to plastic pollution. Welcome and thank you for speaking to me.
2: Well, thank you very much, Ilza. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, a very good morning to you as well as your listeners. It's always a pleasure engaging with Altarians. Uh, I'm having been one myself. I'm always very proud of the work you guys do and the achievements that you keep mounting up um, in holding. You know government accountable for corruption as well as maladministration in all areas of the public space. So just to start from my end, well done, keep up the good work, and I look forward to to engaging with you guys.
0: you mentioned that you're part of a task team, so maybe start there. you are very involved in um environmental law and oversight and things. Just yeah. give us your background and what you are busy with
2: sure. So so as, so as a legal scholar, my area of specialization is international law of the sea, and I hone in particularly with the relationship that African states have with this branch of law um, on a number of fronts, one of them being environmental and the other one being activities that are undertaken at sea, particularly the seabed and subsoil thereof, and general environmental matters as it would pertain to the various sources of pollution. One of the tasks that I do undertake is that I form part of the Plastic Pollution Task Team for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, which falls under the um, Ocean Specialist Group. And the IUCN also has observer status in the UN. So the work undertaken in that body does have a little bit of influence in the undergoings that happen at a multilateral treaty level. Um so yeah, so I form part of the Plastic Pollution Treaty uh task team and our job there is basically to aid uh states as well as other organizations that will be participating in a treaty to curb and eradicate plastic pollution on how best to navigate the legal terrain when it comes to adopting that treaty. And this sort of work isn't necessarily new to this particular entity because it has been significantly involved in the treaty concerning biodiversity beyond areas of national jurisdiction. So right now, our work is really much centered on aiding those that will be negotiating the treaty as far as plastics are concerned and making helping them make sense of, of the terrain.
0: So we have all seen these huge islands of plastic pollution in the sea, um, containers and straws and whatever um, is dumped in rivers inevitably ends up in the sea, especially in poor countries, especially in countries with failing or non-existing infrastructure. What will a treaty add to this? Let's just explain to our viewers how important it sure. is that things are written up in laws and that there's yeah. oversight.
2: Sure. So so let's actually, yeah, that's it's, it's a very good question because it's very important to put it into context. The, the issues that we have now with regard to plastic pollution, what the scientists have uncovered is that the significant amounts of plastic pollution that we see in our marine spaces and that will include your rivers and estuaries, is actually having an adverse effect on marine life and is actually compounding the effects of climate change as far as oceans are concerned. So what what ultimately happens over there is that marine biodiversity, and I'm sure people have seen images of, of these, uh, actually ingests a lot of these plastics. So you would find, for instance, a humpback whale that has been beached somewhere. And if they were to do an autopsy, they'd find X amount of kilograms of plastic in them. Or what also happens is that because these plastics float in ocean spaces for so long and disintegrate in those ocean plastics, they become then what we term as microplastics, which are then also ingested um, small fishing species, which we eventually as humans consume. So it does have an adverse anthropological impact to us as individuals who consume you know certain species within the sea, but it also has a compounding effect on the impacts of climate change. So there is a need to, and you'll note that the, the the approach that's been taken has been that to curb plastic pollution, and that really speaks to finding implementable ways to ensure that plastics form part of the life cycle for longer periods before they are discarded. Because once we can achieve that, we can then mitigate the extent to which we find pollution within rivers, estuaries and ocean spaces. So that's really, really the work that's been undertaken at that level. And that's really been spurred on by the United Nations Environment Programme, which adopted the treaty to undertake preparatory work for negotiations.
0: So who's to blame? Is it us as individuals, consumers or is it governments?
2: Well, look, the treaty frameworks that that govern plastic pollution, and I think the overarching one, is the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And this is generally the framework instrument that governs all matters pertaining to the sea. One of its sections deals with environmental protection and preservation. And under that, it speaks about sources of marine pollution, chief among which, well, perhaps not even chief, but integral among which is land based sources of marine pollution. So, When we start talking about plastic pollution, we're actually talking about a land-based source of marine pollution, and that's owing to the extent to which us as consumers use plastics and the rate with with which we discard them without putting them in a value system that will allow them to be recycled and reused for other purposes. So largely, the the waste that we see in ocean spaces is human-based. And so an adoption of a treaty will aid to curb our behavior and the manner in which we interact with plastics and how we go about, you know, reusing and recycling them.
0: I don't know if this is part of your work as an environmental legal brain, but don't you think we need stronger laws on recycling and we need more action when it comes to recycling? Yeah. I've been to countries 13, 14 years ago where it was compulsory to recycle and here we are in 2023 in South Africa Mm -hmm. and people not only litter a lot but they recycle very little and they chase away the poor guys and women who try and do it from our dustbins on a weekly basis.
2: Yeah, So, so I think as far as law and governance is concerned and I'll speak from South Africa's perspective you generally find that we have very good policies and very good laws that may aid the curbing of this particular source of pollution. So, as far as South Africa is concerned, we speak specifically of, you know, the National Environmental Management Act as the framework instrument pertaining to environmental law, and in specific, uh, that would deal with perhaps plastic pollution would be the Waste Management Act. And over there, you'd find regulations and guidelines that would speak to, you know, how to address various sources of waste and the activities that ought to be undertaken, etc. So you tend to find that the framework as it pertains to the various sources of pollutions is actually very good. The issue we have is implementing those um, and enforcing those provisions. Um, so I think that's generally our challenge because when you don't have enforcement agencies that are capable of discharging all those obligations, then consumers will not necessarily behave accordingly. So that's what you tend to find in different jurisdictions. So for instance, in Germany, and I've had the privilege of visiting there a few times, consumers there, it's inculcated within societal culture to recycle. Every place you go to, every household you go to, every hostel or dormitory that you go to, they are recycle bins. And you don't necessarily need an enforcement agency in a country like that because the people there will put you in line if you fail to recycle accordingly. So I think in South Africa, it really becomes a cultural thing within society whereby we need to be cognizant on how we treat our waste, how we go about disposing of our waste and start forming a new societal culture that embraces recycling owing to the impact that it could have on their physical. life. So it becomes really a behavioral issue that we need to start engaging with. And I think You know, there are a number of things that could happen outside government to encourage that sort of behavior. But the framework as far as governance, as far as policy and law is concerned is indeed intact. I think once there's a treaty framework in in place that would deal with plastic pollution, then those frameworks would have to adopt or adapt accordingly. But I think generally the provisions do speak to, you know, measures being taken to curb those sources of
0: pollution. So what you are saying is the law is there. Um, there's no enforcement. Obviously, also, we have got so many things to try and enforce in this country. But the change lies with us. Yeah. That is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, if we're talking about an environment that is conducive to a person's health and well-being, as enshrined in Section 24 of the Constitution, and then the practice of that means that our immediate communities in order for them to contribute to our health and well-being need to be kept at a very clean and tidy state so the immediate benefit you know of recycling ensures that you know wherever we live be it in in, in suburbs townships everywhere the immediate community is generally clean and tidy And that's a responsibility that everyone has to shoulder, not just government. Of course, government has a role to play and have a big role to play. But we also need to be able to introspect and devise ways and measures to ensure that our communities are clean and tidy. And a consequence of that is if we are better managing our waste within our households, within our neighborhoods, within our communities then we are curbing the amount of waste that would go out into the ocean spaces.
0: Okay, but then there's also the problem of failing infrastructure and uh, lack of service delivery because there's so much political fighting going on, so little delivery happening. Um, And for that, do you have any advice on that? Because we are getting a bit moodless. we are getting a bit hopeless in South Africa because we... We live in metros where there simply aren't enough waste-collected trucks, for instance. Durban Etiquini is suffering because the infrastructure is failing. What's the answer there or the solution?
2: Well, well, this is where you then um, you know organizations like Alta have a significant role to play by enforcing those legislative provisions and those governance provisions to ensure that those who are tasked with dealing with waste management at a large scale uh, actually execute um, on those obligations, uh, primarily because those activities are, or those services rather are financed through taxpayers' money. So I think in aspects where you're dealing with large-scale waste management and where municipalities are failing to be it collecting litter, you know, putting them at landfill, or you have landfill infrastructure that is deliberated and hasn't been maintained, You know, then it's up to engage citizens to be able to devise measures to hold them accountable. But at the same time, while that is happening, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that an interim measure cannot be undertaken by ordinary citizens. You know, to ensure that at least their immediate environments are well looked after and kept. So I think it, it it does go both ways. There definitely is an obligation on the state and its state organs to be able to deal with large-scale waste management. And over there, one could deal with campaigns and approaches in order to ensure that those are enforced. But in tandem with that, there are also measures that ordinary citizens can engage or perhaps even devise to ensure that there is adequate waste management within their communities, both immediate and broader.
0: And then, of course, South Africa is being... Kept vigilant and uh, clean and alert uh, by organizations like WaterCan. I know there are several actions with other water warriors countrywide who are keeping or trying to keep rivers clean. Mm. Uh, WaterCan is trying to create countrywide alert about the precious state of our water and how how we need to start standing up for our water resources. So, of course we can also just support all those organizations and
2: actions. exactly exactly and look i mean you, so, so so that that's a good example of what engaged citizens are doing in order to hold those who have been put in power by ordinary citizens to hold them accountable to their undertakings so that's that's definitely a great example but i mean there's always a case to be made i was watching the news the other day that the premier of of Gauteng has identified um, an avenue to create jobs for young people within various services and industries. When you consider also the extent of pollution that we have um, in our communities, and then consider further that year on year, we find that there is significant wasteful expenditure as well as money that has been budgeted or allocated for a specific service that has been returned back to treasury because it hasn't been utilised. So I think one could always scrutinize budgets and see what may be available to perhaps compensate those who are currently unemployed to be waste pickers within various sectors of the community. And that may be a way of being engaged, but also encouraging government to, you know, to find ways to, to incentivize people of keeping the immediate environments tight. Um, is it a question of there is a lack of money? That's a very difficult argument to make from a government point of view particularly when you see the extent of wastage and the extent to which money gets sent back to the treasury that hasn't been used for its allocated purposes. So it's a matter of being very vigilant with how those financial resources are are utilized.
0: And again, it comes back to public pressure and to organizations like Watercan and Outa and others forcing government to do what they are paid well
2: to do. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's precisely it. So on one hand you can be robust with government um, and demanding that they execute on their undertakings as a citizen that is what you are entitled to do, but you're also not prohibited from providing viable solutions to government where they may not necessarily, you know, have answers to a particular problem. You know, as citizens one can advise on a an appropriate way to deal with issues. But in tandem, you know, you can also, you know, hold government to account, robustly so, as a taxpayer and as a voting citizen. That is your, your inherent democratic right to, to enforce.
0: My last question would be around industry's role and also legislation and oversight when it comes to industries and pollution mm-hmm. in general, but also then specifically plastic pollution. Is yeah. that in order?
2: that's one of the big debating uh, points when it comes to the treaty negotiations is the impact that it's actually going to have on industries, because a large part of them, especially if you consider that you know plastics and the chemical compounds that comprise of plastics, you know would harm specific uh, nations that you know produce those chemicals, be it petrochemicals or otherwise. So that becomes really part of the debate, the extent to which, they will be harmed, you know, depending on the wording of that instrument or the extent to which they would need to adjust. The language, however, as it is being suggested is that, you know, it's not a complete eradication of plastic pollution, but it is um, a manner or, or it is what is suggested is how do we curb plastic pollution, implying therefore that, you know, how do we then ensure that a plastic that is produced before it is discarded, enters a life cycle of at least three to four times and can be recycled and be reused and repurposed for other things. So industry will have to start rethinking about, you know, its uses, its production of plastics and how it could, you know, form part of ensuring that those resources stay longer within the lifespan of that than they would ordinarily do before that they are discarded. So it, it will have an impact. The significance of that impact we are yet to determine because we don't have a treaty framework in place yet. I think once that instrument is negotiated and adopted, then of course, how one adapts and complies with those provisions, that being South Africa as a participating nation, as well as the industries within South Africa that will be bound by its environmental framework. That is yet to be seen, but I think if one starts looking at the the nature of the negotiations, one can already see that there are some contentious elements, uh, particularly within industry.
0: Well, good luck with that work. Um, I think that is an enormous task to just get people to sit down around one table and talk about something like a treaty to uh, protect the environment. My guest today was a former Arterian, Yamkela Ntola, and nowadays he's Senior Lecturer with the Department of Public, Constitutional and International Law at UNISA's College of Law. Yamkela, thanks so much for your time and for your insight. And good luck.
2: Thank you. Thank you. All the best and keep up the good work.
1: If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel to stay updated.